just step up and come running to you this morning, a couple over here. So just still take a look at, at these, and we're going to walk through these passages. Hey, here's neat things. Uh, parents, your kids are actually right now in this service, they're working through this same section of Scripture. And so when you get done, uh, uh, remember, don't ask them, did you have fun this morning? All right? Uh, hopefully they will. I think they will. Um, ask them about the story. Ask them to, that they would tell you the story that they studied uh, back in class this morning because it's going to be similar to what we're working through. This is week two of this series, The Thing About Christianity. Last week, we just introduced this idea that sometimes the way we present Christianity actually sets it up to be kind of weak. And we're going to walk through this series, and we're asking a question, are there assumptions we're making? Are there things that we've drawn from Scripture that when we really look and we walk through Scripture, God is saying, look, here is what it means to be Christian. This is what this Christianity thing is all about. So that's kind of where we're going. It's a 12-week journey, right? And so it'll be about uh, 12, 20-minute snippets to walk through it. So if you miss a Sunday morning, make sure you catch up. And the better way is to catch up and stay in order as we talk about some things that we would have already discussed, and they make more sense that way. So that doesn't mean this morning that if you uh, were not here last week or did not watch last week, don't stand up and walk out uh, this morning, all right? I'm going to holler to you if you do. So um, if you're at home doing that, you know, what can I do? I don't know. Oh, but we're going to jump into this second part, this where did it all come from? So let me pray and we'll jump into it. Father, thank you uh, this morning uh, for this series. The thing about Christianity, what is it? What is it at its core that makes us Christian? What is this defining qualities, characteristics, and calling on our life? Lead us, Lord, uh, in this journey, in this series. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Hey, what you need to know is that ancient Israel was a means to an end, right? Now, we often use that as a negative term, but it's, it's not. Uh, in fact, it's not a slide at all. Being a means to an end is actually what gives something meaning and purpose and value. If you refuse to become a means to an end, it's very hard to have meaning and significance. You live for yourself, and you only have yourself to show for it, right? Funerals teach us this. We celebrate how much that person gave of their life or gave their life away, being what we term a means to an end, purpose, value, and meaning. Back to Israel. God created the nation of Israel to be a means to a divine end. In fact, when we look at God's word, we actually have to put it in the context and interpret it in the context of this thing called Israel that God created. And he created it for a global purpose. Now, this global plan, it happened long before he announced it, long before it began. It was about uh, 2067 B.C. that God promised, get this, 99-year-old Abraham, right? He called 99-year-old Abraham, said, you're going to have a nation, a son, and he would bless, do you remember? The world, the world would be blessed through this. Now, we don't even have time to break down all the weirdness of that story and even the age of Abraham and his wife when Isaac came along, but to the entire world. Here's the original meaning. Look at your notes. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. This is the, the, the deal he made. 
God promised Abraham that his name would be great, right? That's Bible speak for I'll make you famous. I'm guessing this is not the first time that you've heard of Abraham, right? Father Abraham, I, you know, all the way back when you were a little kid. Do I need to go on? Anyone not know that song? All right, I'll, I'll not go on. So I'm getting the, please don't, please don't. So there you go. Promise kept. You know Abraham's name. But here's the rest. Take a look at the next verse. And all peoples, get this, on earth will be blessed through you. Listen, you can't imagine how ridiculous this sounded. For a, a man who had no people standing in the middle of nowhere would have this type of calling placed on his life. But that promise, we actually find, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we find this kicked off a chain of events that would play out over the next 2,000 years. Now, in addition to this promise, there's something that's kind of pe peculiar about it as well. God promised, get this, to bless, to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. That didn't make any sense. Ancient people did not bless one another, right? Take a look at the Bible. Take a look at even some non-biblical accounts of ancient people. They don't bless one another. Tribes conquer, they plunder, and they enslave one another. I mean, let's face it. We don't always do a lot of blessing of each other in different countries in these days, right? Maybe we spy or we negotiate, we impose sanctions, we do things like that. Again, we can't imagine how ridiculous this sounded to Abraham, this calling that was being put on his life. But Abraham did eventually have people. Take a look at the book of Genesis, read through that, and they grew, and they grew. And eventually they migrated to Egypt because of a famine. And eventually while in Egypt, they multiplied to the point where they were a multitude of people. So much so that the host country, Egypt, got very nervous about this. And Pharaoh decided, I'll just put them to work as slaves. And that's what happened. They became slaves making bricks. Now, what God did was God said, um, I'm going to come and do something about this. Because at the time, the people were like, well, so much, I guess, for the blessing all the nations. It's hard to bless all the nations when you're making bricks every day for this Pharaoh who actually calls himself the Almighty, right? But God shows up. He taps Moses, right, to be his representative, and he sends him to Pharaoh. And do you remember he sends him with that line, right, that unforgettable line, right? He says this, let my people go. Say it with me, right? Let my people go. Yeah, that was the call. That was God saying this. And you know it took a little while. It took a few uh, plagues. It took some arm twisting. It took Pharaoh saying, yeah, 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 go. No, 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 get back. It took about 10 times of that. It took the death of Pharaoh's son as well. But eventually he released them. Now, the reason I feel the freedom kind of to summarize all of this history in such a short period of time is because we're very familiar with the aspect of these stories, at least the outline and the bullet points. But while most of us uh, know this story, it's impossible sometimes for us to miss some of its significance. We do this. We kind of miss some things. In this really extraordinary way, Remember the, the Red Sea parting? In an amazing, extraordinary way here, that God actually demonstrates something to his people. In a foreign land in Egypt, 
while they were slaves, God showed up. God was mobile. God went to them. Now, you might not think much about that. You might just move on and go, yeah, what's the big deal, right? That didn't happen in ancient times. The the people's gods were kind of central to their country, their land, their place. The Israelites had no place. And God shows up. God comes with a message that's very clear to Pharaoh. He says, look, you've got something that belongs to me, and I will not be leaving here without it. This mobile God, this invisible God comes, and one by one he humiliates the Egyptian gods. That's really what the the plagues are all about. They are actually coming against the individual gods of Egypt of the day. God does this. And in the end, it actually worked out that God's people, these Israelites, they would actually plunder the wealthiest nation of the time as they would head out. And all this without holding one person by the sword. That's how God worked in this dramatic, amazing way. By the time they left, Egypt's economy was decimated. That's why Pharaoh came after them. Because he's like, what are we going to do now? Our workforce is gone. And that's why Pharaoh came. That's why the sea was parted. And that's why Pharaoh took as long a swim as he could when the waters closed up on the Red Sea. God was mightier than all of Egypt's God. And listen, all of this without home field advantage. He was the visiting team. And mobile gods were not a thing in ancient times. That's something to not overlook. Because we're going to see it throughout the Old Testament that God is mobile and comes to his people. Fast forward. Four months later, we find actually the people of Israel, they're camping in the desert now. They're out at Mount Sinai. Do you remember the Mount Sinai? They're there, and they're watching Moses descend up and down the mountain, and he keeps bringing back these tablets, these rules. We know them as the Ten Commandments, but they're more like, when it's all said and done, the 600 commandments that he brings down. The famous first 10 that we know of, they actually kind of function as a a table of contents, which opens up the rest of the law and the understanding of this law. So the Ten Commandments, kind of like the the Cliff Notes version, right? Does Cliff Notes exist anymore? I mean, if you're my age, you know Cliff Notes real well, right? Right? We read a lot of Cliff Notes, right? Some books, lots of Cliff Notes. Here's what Here's how it begins, this whole constitution. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's God saying, look, that was me that did that. Now, I would love for you, if you you had time on your own, go trace how many times the Lord uses this type of words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You find it over and over and over. It is if God's saying, I want to remind you who I am. And what I did for you. Translated. I did that. He continues. You shall have no other gods before me. Now at this point in time, they said, you are correct. We shall not. We will not have any other gods before. We saw what you just did with Pharaoh. We saw it while we were in Egypt. And we saw it when the Red Sea opened and closed. But then he says this. This is interesting. You shall not make for yourself in an image in the form of anything in heaven on above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Listen, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Why? Well, we're going to see that's what every pagan religion did. Every single one. 
And God said, that's not what I'm about. So when Moses finished reading all that God required to the nation, guess what the people said? It's right there in your notes. Everything the Lord has said, what? We will do, right? But they didn't, right? They didn't. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. They were at camp. So did you keep all your camp commitments? I certainly didn't keep all my camp commitments. So what do we expect there, right? So the movies of, uh, about this, the cartoon movies, maybe the, uh, the picture book stories that we tell and read, uh, these actually, they, they can't accurately reflect how many times Moses went up and down the mountain all right, to, to expand and flush out what God was teaching, what God was giving to his people. In one of these mountain climbing uh, trips, I guess it lasted 40 days. It was a long time. In fact, they were like, where's Moses? What happened to him? What's going on? You may remember this from Sunday school, this passage in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come make us gods who will go before us as of this fellow Moses. I love how they say that, like, this guy, what's his name? What Mo, Was it Moses? Is that the right name? Like they've almost forgot who he is. It's 40 days, right? As for this guy, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, seriously, like God is, has barely finished putting the fine print together for Moses to bring back down the mountain. And they're already kind of grumbling and complaining, going, what is all this? What's going on? Then it continues. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What? Does that make any sense to you? That how those cows they just watched, they just watched Aaron make from the plundered treasure from Egypt. Like these were the ones that delivered you from Egypt. How is it that recently freed slaves could abandon the God who recently freed them? Seems strange, right? To happen so fast. But there's something most of us get confused about here. It's confusing because it's new territory for the people of Israel. You see, you and I grew up with the idea of an invisible, everywhere at one time God. We've been declaring that. Your kids are in Sunday school and they're getting this declared to them this morning. We grew up understanding and knowing that, but not these people. You see, they had just spent 430 years in Egypt as slaves dominated mostly by the pagan gods. And that worship even seeped in. And those gods all had idols. They all had something visible, or visible, tangible, stationary, something they could look at, they could bow to and worship. And whether they deeply participated in those pagan worship or not, it was always there, either overtly or subtly influencing what they thought about God. And so for them, it made perfectly sense. We need something tangible. We need something we can see. We need something that's placed there that we can bow to, that we know clear. God's invisible, and we don't even know where Moses is. 
give us something like that. Well, that episode didn't end very well. You right, remember? It actually uh, resulted in Moses having to go back up the mountain and for God to re-chisel maybe out something that he had already done because, you know, Moses got a little upset and broke some of them. Look, this is how this freed relationship with Israel and the invisible God starts out. It's complicated even from the beginning. Now, let's pause. Before we look too deeply at the troubles and the difficulties, how often do we put ourselves in the same position, the same thought of wanting to seek and hold something tangible that can take care of us, that, that we can look to and comfort us to take care of our needs, something tangible, my job, my money, my relationships, when all the time this invisible God who provides and who has delivered us is there just the same as he is here. They're freed from their Egyptian taskmasters, and they're equipped now with, with rules to live by. They're given new culture is what's going on here. They had no culture of their own. God established that and sends them out. But before they actually leave Sinai, something happened. Moses actually commissioned the construction of a tent-like uh, structure that would house these tablets and these Ten Commandments. A box, the commandments would go into them, a tent would go over it, and they would move this. It was called the tabernacle, this, this mobile moving place. But when, some, when all of this was done, the tabernacle was constructed, and the tablets were put, and they were rested in this wooden box, something extraordinary happened. It's recorded in Scripture, Exodus chapter 40. Take a look. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God took up residence. God, in a real way, even made his invisible self visible to them as he took up residence in the tabernacle. Nobody carried a portable like statue God into the tabernacle that they put on a shelf to represent God. God's presence alone was very clear and very understood. He is here. And so he filled it with his glory, his presence, and it was on his term. But listen, even in the midst of this, of God in their midst, Israel was still, remember the, the, the promise to Abraham, they still were in no position to bless all the other nations. Just ask Pharaoh. Nobody was feeling very blessed back in Egypt right now. Another thing, in addition to, uh, to Moses' many trips up and down Mount Sinai, there's something else that we modern readers miss as we look at this Old Testament and these writings and this, this, this thing that Moses was carrying up and down. The content or the wording here and the arrangement of God's instructions to, to Israel, it's actually in the form of a legal contract. Scholars refer to this template as a, a Susan Tree Treaty. This is a form of agreement that's used with non-equal parties, right? When the, the, the more powerful person, think about God here, creates this contract with conditions with people beneath him. Think parents' rules, right? You may have the car as long as you're back by 10 o'clock, right? 
That's the kind of treaty that's put together, and it's a legal treaty in, in that kind of form. And the point being that, like, the 10-plus commandments here that are put together, the law that was put together, uh, were more than commandments. They were part of an extensive legal contract that God is putting in place here. It's a covenant. And that's where we start to get and understand the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And this is where it's birth, this covenant, where it comes from. Here's the original wording, Exodus chapter 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made, here's the word, a covenant with you and with Israel. Now, we know that God made covenant with Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You're going to bless every nation. But this is a covenant now he's making with the nation of Israel. And so the events of Mount Sinai, they signal the start of this covenant relationship. As they head off to the promised land, they now understand that they're living under covenant with God. And we actually find, if you want to read on your own, the primary terms of this covenant are in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. If you want to see it really flushed out and expanded and explained, then you can jump in and read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All my life, pastors and teachers have kind of joked with the idea of, of those books being hard to work through or boring to work through, and almost excusing those books, move on to the, 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 you know, the book of Judges and start getting going with story. I'm encouraging you not to do that. I'm encouraging you get in those books and read and see what is there and see what this covenant is all about that God offers his people. But the following three verses kind of summarize the deal. Take a look at them. Exodus 19. You yourself have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He chose them and blessed them and made covenant with them. This is a classic, I will do as long as you do type of covenant that was made. You see it right in the verses there. Keep my commandments and I'll keep you safe. Your name your nation will be a holy nation. This agreement was conditional. If the nation of Israel did not uphold their end of the bargain, God was under no position to have to uphold his. We actually find out he does anyway, even though we see how Israel behaved. We'll get that later. So you got it? You understand this covenant that was made and birthed here. Last thing. Israel eventually arrived in the promised land. They eventually moved forward. Once they arrived, we find they didn't go about blessing people right away. We don't see that. In fact, uh, they conquered, and on occasion, they plundered their way to dominance in the, the promised land. After several generations of this kind of God-ordained system of judges, the tribe of elders got together, and they said, listen, time for us to grow up. Time for us to be like the other nations. We would like to have a king. And that's exactly what they asked for. Now, you got to understand, it was never God's intent that his nation would have a king. That's not how he set it up. He set it up so that they would look to him for their guidance. But 
Um, you might know all the cool kids had, had kings. All the other nations had kings. So they felt like they needed a king and wanted a king. So they actually corner Samuel. You can read the story. They confront the prophet Samuel, and they insist that he appoint a king. Samuel went and checked in with God on this, and here's what God told him. Listen to these words, 1 Samuel 8, 7. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you who they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, is what God's saying. Ouch. God is saying they've rejected me, and he's aware of it. Continues. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them, get this, over them will claim as his rights. Samuel returned to the elders, did everything God had said. He tried to talk the king out of them, no avail. The people demanded that they have a king. We want a king over us, they said. So what set up was the next stage for what happened. 1 Samuel 8, 20. When we saw, then we will be, this is the people talking, we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Side note, so you can understand this. You see, the number seven shows up a lot in Scripture. The number seven actually is this number that stands for completeness. God ordained completeness. How do we get to this number? We go all the way back to creation and we understand that God created in six days. We often say he created six days, then he rested on the seventh. But really what the word means is he ceased on the seventh and he made it a holy day unto himself. So it is not like it's the downtime. God actually made that the climax of his creation story was the seventh day. A holy day where none of that work had to be done, none of that creation, but there was a holiness unto him for him and all of his creation to stand in the presence of God, to be with God with no other responsibilities, with no other task. And so you can understand the, the climax of this seven-day cycle. That's how we get this understanding of the word of seven, the number seven being this completeness and why it shows up over and over and over as God's divine number throughout Scripture. You've seen it uh, in terms of seven, seven, seven as well. Repeated three times, there was another form of completeness and wholeness that's added to it as we think about the terms of the Trinity from creation in the very beginning that God, the Father, the Son, all together they always were. And so we get this completeness. And so that's why we see these terms, seven, 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 seven. We see these work together. Now, on the flip side, the word six or the number six would be uh, an incomplete number, at least compared to seven. It would, it would signify the six days of work, the six days of tasks that we have to do, right? Where we have to put our hands and our efforts to it. But when we take out the seventh day, the day holy unto the Lord, where we get to simply be in the presence of God, then what we've done is we've defined it 
based on human terms, human effort. We've put the divine out of it. And so the words, the number six, and then later you might know, you might be already jumping ahead in your, in your head, six, six, six. And now we look at trying to replace the, the three of the Trinity with multiplying the effort, the human effort, the human thinking, the human uh, action and activity where we cut God out and we're seeking a wholeness outside of being in the presence of God, which is seventh day symbolized. So understand this now when you can go back on your own and this sermon's not about that and you can read Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 16 and you can start to understand when there's this mark of the beast talk that you can see how prevalent and important this understanding that humanness, when we cut God out and we rely on our own effort and our own ability as if that's going to bring completeness and wholeness for everything we need, that that's, that's what we're seeing is talked about. Now, flashback to this verse we just read. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, not God, and to go out before us and to fight our battles. God had just fought their battle in Egypt. Now we need a king. We need a king to do that. The problem, of course, is God didn't intend for Israel to be like all the other nations. God intended for, for Israel to stand out from all the other nations. God intended for Israel to depend on him as their king and as their leader. He was planning to do something great. Do you remember what it was? They were a means to a global end. That was the original promise to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Now, in the end, you know, uh, Israel caved to that kind of peer pressure of all the other nations. They got exactly what they asked for. In another passage, God just says, oh, all right, you're going to get your king, but you get everything that comes with it. And you might remember, they got a king, several actually. In fact, there was many years where they had more than one at the same time. And guess what? Those kings did not get along either. It was a disaster, most of the kings a few godly kings, most were a disaster. The nation actually paid for this decision in treasure and blood. In fact, in that way, they did become like all the other nations. In spite of this, God kept the promise to Abraham. God kept it. He would not abandon his global purposes. He would not abandon that he would bless all people through this nation. All the nations on earth would be blessed. But before that would happen, we've got to talk a little bit about the temple and how that worked and what that symbolized. And in some instances, how did it go wrong? But we'll do that next week. How about that? Oh. All right, let me pray for you. Father, this morning, I think the message that rises for me as I am studying, as I'm looking, is the danger is, Lord, that I, I can easily step out and desire to say, God, thanks for what you did. I'm moving on with me. And I can forget, Lord, that you were better. What you offer is better. Lord, I can forget your intent at times. 
Lord, sometimes it's just a matter of even if I don't see what you're offering and you're doing, that I just simply am saying, I don't trust you, Lord. I trust myself. <coughs> Father, that's what we see. That's what Israel is struggling with, even in the birth, even the birth of their nation. There's so much for us to learn from that. There's so much that carries over in how we live out our life today. So, Father, speak to our hearts. May we learn, as we often say, from history, from this history that we learn today. And now convict us. And, Lord, there wasn't a clear action step. Think about doing this, this, or this. Your Holy Spirit right here and right now as we close this off can speak very direct, very clear, and very practical to every person in this room and online this morning. Would you do it? And would we walk out of here knowing God is leading me to do this or to give up this or to whatever else? You fill in as the Spirit speaks. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll continue that uh, next week, and we'll jump into uh, kings, which brought forth temples, and what that did to the nation of Israel uh, as well. In tracking us forward to asking this question, what is this thing called Christianity all about? Well, hey, 